This is Certified, the OCS Prep Podcast. I'm Alexis. And I'm Amanda. And we're here to help you prepare for your OCS exam. Hi, everyone. I just wanted to remind you that Amanda and I have created a Patreon page for the podcast this year. If you become a Patreon member, you can gain early access to episodes without ads, access to bonus episodes, a monthly newsletter with study tips, and more. You can join by visiting www.patreon.com slash certified OCS prep podcast. Also, if you're using MedBridge to study, you can get $175 off your yearly membership by using our affiliate code CERTIFIED. If you have any questions about MedBridge or Patreon, you can email us at certifiedocspodcast at gmail.com. Hi, everyone. So today we're going to talk a little bit about tests and measures for the hips. So on the last episode, I went over some different, um, you know, common diagnoses that we see in the hips. So today we're going to focus a little more on um, what the assessment of these patients looks like. So a few quick notes I wanted to make before we get started. Um, And it's really important to keep in mind that the mechanics of the hip and the complexity of the joint uh, when we're talking about hip pain and treating hips. So, um, you know, it's not just a simple um, joint that moves, you know, in one plane of just a few planes of motion. Um, it's, a, it's a very dynamic joint and it moves in a lot of different planes. So we need to keep that in mind. Um, and it's also important to keep in mind the close relationship between the pelvis, the SI joint and the hips. Movement at the hip joint are specifically related to movements at the SI joint and pelvis, uh, which we discuss a lot in the SI joint episode and the pelvis anatomy and biomechanics episode. So dysfunction in the pelvis and lower back is often related to dysfunction in the hips. The hips are also frequently involved in patients with knee pain uh, due to mechanics, changes in mechanics down the chain with hip dysfunction as well. So it's something to keep in mind um, also. The hip joint is designed to accept force as well, especially during gait. Uh, however, studies have shown that the amount of femoral antiversion a person has does, does have an effect on the amount of force applied at the hip during gait. Um, and that this alteration in forces can lead to hip OA. So that's just another thing I wanted to kind of point out before we get started. Um, and in talking about, you know, the, the different ways that the hip moves, um, just a quick mechanics review. Due to the oblique orientation of the acetabulum, the femoral head moves in a three-dimensional manner. Um, so hip flexion requires femoral head flexion, abduction, and internal rotation with respect to the acetabulum. Hip extension requires femoral head extension, adduction, and external rotation with respect to the acetabulum. Hip abduction requires femoral head abduction, extension, and external rotation. And hip adduction requires femoral head adduction, flexion, and external rotation. Many areas of the capsule are twisted during movements of the hip, um, and all of these motions need to be addressed in order to restore normal mechanics in your patients with hip pain. So it's just something to keep in mind. It's, it's not a simple, um, you know, flexion, extension, abduction, adduction, you know, all these, there needs to be more movement in that joint. Um, and so we just need to be aware of that when we're treating these patients that it's a little more um, complicated than, than some of the other joints we typically work with. So 
The next thing I want to talk about is your screening for referral in these patients. So a few things that you should make sure you're screening for with your hip patients, um, progressive neurologic deficit, recent bowel or bladder dysfunction, saddle anesthesia, a traumatic onset of hip pain is always something that we need to be screening, um, you know, for fractures um, and, and making sure that we're ruling that out. A history of cancer insidious onset, no relief at night or symptoms that are worse in supine, and then a history of UTI or other infection, IV drug use, or TB exposure. So those are all things that you should be regularly screening these hip patients for. Um, specific diagnoses that we want to screen for, and I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the type of patient that we want to make sure we're, we're really looking into the, these things for. So the first one is colon cancer. These patients are generally over 50 years old. Um, they're gonna report bowel dysfunction or disturbances, unexplained weight loss, a family history of colon cancer, as well as pain that's unchanged by positions or movement. The next thing is pathological fracture. So these patients are generally over 70 years old and it's more common in females. They're gonna report a history of a fall and pain is worse with movement. The next one is screening for malignancy in patients with low back pain. So these patients are gonna be patients who are under 50 years old. They have an unexplained change in their weight, failure to improve with conservative management and a previous history of cancer. The next one is a screening for sportsman's hernia. So these um, patients are gonna report a traumatic injury that's associated with twisting, turning, or directional changes in speed causing the hip to move into abduction, adduction, or extension. Uh, this injury is most commonly seen in sports such as hockey or soccer. They're going to report pain in the lower abdominal, inguinal, and groin regions that it can be unilateral or bilateral, and it's going to be exacerbated with exertion or valsalva. These patients are also going to report painful resisted hip adduction that does not improve with the addition of a pelvic ring stabilization belt. And they're also going to present with weak hip manual muscle testing um, and weak and painful oblique abdominal tests with the hip and extension. The last um, diagnosis that I want to talk about screening for um, is juvenile idiopathic arthritis, which was formerly known as juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Um, I'm not sure what terminology might be used on the exam. So I think that's something good to know. Amanda and I were talking about this um, earlier. So juvenile rheumatoid arthritis and juvenile idiopathic arthritis are referring to the same thing. Um, so with this, the age and gender are going to vary by the disease type. The hip joint is affected in 30 to 50% of children that have this type of arthritis. Um, so this is going to be an area where if you're treating um, a minor and they're having hip pain, something that um, could present in the hip very commonly. So you want to take a look at that. The patient's going to have joint swelling, pain, and limited mobility. They're going to report morning stiffness and present with gait deviations. Um, some of the early signs include a leg length discrepancy, pain in the groin, buttock, and medial thigh, or pain in the knee. Um, with these patients, if they're in an acute state, you're going to see joint inflammation, effusion, ligamentous laxity, muscular spasm, and hypertonicity. And in a subacute state, you're going to see synovial hypertrophy, 
loss of joint integrity, muscle atrophy, and weakness. So those are a few of the different ones that I would be aware of, um, just specific diagnoses that we really want to screen our um, non-arthritic hip patients for. The next thing I want to talk a little bit about is physical examination. Um, so obviously with these patients, just like all of our other patients, we want to observe them. We're going to do some palpation, uh, physiologic and accessory motions, manual muscle testing, and we want to look at their leg length and see if there's any sort of um, difference side to side leg length discrepancy. Um, gait analysis is really important in these patients. And we really want to look, um, when we're watching these patients walk, you know, top down and bottom up. So we want to look at their foot and we also want to look at their hip um, and we want to see how they might be affect affecting one another. So it's always important to keep in mind that what's going on at the hip and pelvis is driving what's happening lower in the chain. Um, so observe what's happening at their feet. Don't just look at the hip and lower back region and see, you know, I think we all commonly look for that Trendelenburg and are they getting any rotation through their trunk? Are they kind of laterally swaying? But make sure you're really watching them walk even without their shoes on and seeing what's going, you know, what's driving down at the foot. And then is there something at the foot that might be affecting up at their hip? So um, just something to keep in mind when you're looking at gait on these patients. Functional tests that you want to look at. So squatting, cross-leg sitting, stair negotiation, um, and stork standing. So standing and, and bringing one knee up towards their chest. The other thing is just making sure that you're asking these patients what they want to get back to. Um, I, I think we all kind of go through that exam in our head. We're like, okay, we're going to watch them balance. We're going to watch them go up the stairs, squat. But, you know, are they wanting to run? Are they, uh, you know, somebody I, I know it's not something we maybe see in the clinic quite as often. I see more people now who are working with barbells or doing Olympic lifts. So I like to see them move with that barbell and do those lifts because um, that's going to give me a lot of information on what's going on. Um, and then even like if you have someone who likes to hike, watching them walk on an incline. So just things that we need to make sure we're looking at clinically um, to really get a good idea of what might be going on with them. Special tests, which I'm going to talk about a little bit more, but we want to make sure we're looking through special tests for the hip, the lower back, and the SI joint and pelvis in these patients. Um, and then also, you know, you'll see, I know Current Concepts talks about this a little bit too, um, capsular versus non-capsular pattern in these patients. So with the hip, when we're talking about the capsular pattern, internal rotation is going to be the most limited accompanied by a variable combination of limits in flexion, extension, and abduction. So it's not as um, straightforward as like the capsular pattern that you might see in the glenohumeral joint. Um, there is variability there. So internal rotation is going to be the most limited, but depending on what source you're looking at, you may see um, different opinions on, you know, what's the next most limited motion. Amanda, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or... No, I would agree. I definitely, yeah. definitely clinically see some variability in that. I, I don't mm -hmm. always hang my hat on. Yeah. Yeah. Or nay with that. Yeah. But I think internal rotation, especially in most of my hip and back patients, nine times out of 10, they're, they're limited in their internal rotation. Agreed. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about special tests for the hip and I, I don't want to get too into like describing all of these. I think that we all probably do these often, but if I mention them and, and it's not one that you do or not one that um, you're familiar with, I would definitely make sure you take some time to review these. 
Um, so the Faber and the Fader are ones that are commonly used. And, and I think it's talked about in a lot of different resources for the OCS. So those are ones that you should definitely be familiar with. Um, and then like length discrepancies. So looking at, um, you know, what their true leg length is and if there's a discrepancy there, um, you know, what's going on with that? Where is that coming from? The Thomas test, which is going to give you information on flexibility of the iliopsoas, the rectus femoris, and also tells us a little bit about the muscles that attach to the IT band. Eli's test, which is the prone test that looks at your rectus femoris. Ober's test, which is the sideline test looking at the IT band. 90-90 hamstring length. So doing that 90-90 hamstring test, that's going to give you more of a specific look at the actual hamstring muscle and we're taking out the um, potential you know neural tension that you might get from the sciatic nerve in that active straight leg raise and supine which is going to give us information on instability um, drayman sign which is when the hip moves into external rotation when flexed and it's significantly it ha that patient will also have significantly limited and often painful internal rotation so this is seen in patients who have arthritis, impingement, or a skiffy. So that's a good one to know as well. Um, the femoral fulcrum test, which is looking for stress fractures. The hands, hamstring syndrome test, um, which is an isometric knee flexion test in 9090 that reproduces buttock pain. Uh, they do talk about that one in the current concepts. There's a nice picture of it. Um, Modified circumduction test or scour test. So that's going to give you some information on um, labral issues, labral tears. And then a neural tension test. So looking at the sciatic nerve, the femoral nerve, lateral femoral cutaneous nerve, um, and kind of differentiating out if there's anything going on with that. So um, I also want to point out that on page 43 in current concepts, it's called Appendix 1. They have a list of the clinical examination and special tests for the hip complex, and I think that's a really nice reference, too. It just kind of lays things out, like, by position. Um, and so you can kind of, like, look through. And I think it's a good thing to just sort of read through and say, like, okay, yeah, I know what all these are. And if you're not sure what one is, you know, taking a moment and looking up um, what that special test is and just familiarizing yourself with those. You're never going to know all the special tests, <laughs> But these are ones that I think in the hip are important. I don't know, Amanda, if you have any that you'd like to add in there. No, not necessarily. I would agree, though. Yeah. You know, those are, I would, if you're not familiar with those, I would become familiar. Yes. Yeah. You definitely want to want to take a look through, um, through those ones. So um, the next thing, and I'm going to very briefly touch on this, is just interventions for these patients. Um, so we discussed... A lot of different diagnoses and tests, but in terms of intervention, I'm just going to generally um, note some things that are talked about in the non-arthritic hip CPG. Um, there is a lot of discussion in the current concepts monograph as well about different treatments for um, you know, different diagnoses. But we also did in season one, an episode on the non-arthritic hip CPG, where we go into more detail about these different um, types of treatments for these patients. So the first thing is patient education. Um, so with these patients, we want to encourage activity modification to avoid pain-provoking positions and activities in work tasks, daily activities, and exercise. Um, we also want to consider central sensitization along with any psychological or behavioral factors that could be contributing um, 
to pain and their pain experience. The next thing is manual therapy. So um, joint mobilizations may be indicated when capsular restrictions are suspected to impair hip mobility and soft tissue mobilization procedures may be indicated when muscles and their related fascia are suspected to impair mobility. Um, therapeutic exercises might be used um, to address joint mobility, muscle flexibility, muscle strength, muscle power deficits, deconditioning, and metabolic disorders identified during the physical examination. So just like with any other diagnosis, you know, our findings are going to drive our exercise prescription. And then the same with neuromuscular reeducation. So um, this might be used to diminish any movement coordination impairments that are identified. Um, and according to the non-arthritic hip CPG, all of these interventions for non-arthritic hip pain are rated at a level F, which is expert opinion. Um, so there's not a ton of research that is um, showing, you know, one of these is, is better than the other. All of this is, is kind of based on expert opinion. Um, so that's, that's kind of what I wanted to cover today in terms of you know, the tests and measures that we often do, and just a little bit on intervention. Um, obviously, whatever you're finding in your screening and in your, um, you know, examination is going to drive your decision on um, what type of intervention you're doing. And, you know, I just wanted to point out that there's not a ton of evidence that's supporting, you know, one specific type of manual therapy or one specific type of exercise uh, over another. So it just really depends on the patient and you want to make sure that you're monitoring them and, and assessing their progress as you're going. So Amanda, do you have anything you want to add to any of that? I don't think so. I think that was a good summary. And like Alexa said, um, we do have a couple other hip episodes that we did in season one that are a little bit more diagnosis specific. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you need to brush up on some of those diagnoses, I would refer you to the that section yeah absolutely absolutely so all right well thank you very much bye-bye thanks